I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 25th, 2013. Coming up, we'll learn how CU Boulder scientists will soon take unmanned aircraft to the Arctic to learn how sea ice is melting. And no, these aren't the kind of bad drones you hear a lot about lately. And we'll learn about how a new way to predict and measure aggression. That's with a scientist who uses a voodoo doll. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Earlier this year, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission approved a 500-foot buffer between homes and new oil and gas wells, increasing the setback from 350 feet. The move was aimed at reducing the risk of contamination of groundwater by oil wells. New research from Duke University shows that for some wells, a 500-foot setback might not be nearly enough. Scientists analyzed 141 drinking water samples from private water wells across northeastern Pennsylvania's gas-rich Marcellus Shale Basin. At homes within 3,000 feet from the wells, methane concentrations were six times higher than at homes located farther away, and concentrations of ethane, another hydrocarbon gas, were 23 times higher. Propane was detected in 10 samples, all of them from homes within a kilometer, that's roughly 3,000 feet, of drilling. The team concluded that distance to gas wells was, by far, the most significant factor influencing gases in the drinking water. The new findings appear this week in the online early edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Research from Europe indicates that it is indeed possible to suffer death by cola drinking. Death is rare, but it does happen, according to the report issued this week by the European Society of Cardiology. More commonly, excess cola drinking can lead to irregular heartbeats and fainting. As for why, the caffeine and sugar in a cola can flush too much potassium from the bloodstream. The potassium imbalance can then lead to these other conditions. As for how much cola is too much, the report discusses a 31-year-old hospitalized for fainting who had extremely low blood potassium levels. After ruling out typical medical reasons for the low potassium, the clinicians discovered that since the age of 15, the patient had exclusively replaced water with cola beverages. The hospital staff urged the patient to stop drinking cola, and within a week, potassium levels were normal again without any more fainting. Low potassium can also lead to irregular heart rhythms. In many communities, cola drinks are cheaper than bottled drinking water. For this reason, the researchers conclude it's important that the people are made aware of the potential health dangers of drinking too many sugary or caffeinated drinks. And it's also important for communities to make water more affordable than cola. If you're feeling rejected, try to reach out to others. Why? Well, it might improve your mood, thanks to a hormone known as oxytocin. Oxytocin rises during childbirth and breastfeeding, and it seems to promote bonding between a mother and a child. The hormone also increases when people care for each other, or feel cared for by others. Now, it looks like the hormones can affect that evil twin of bonding known as social rejection. To find out how, Researchers from Concordia University in Canada recruited 100 students whom they met with one at a time. In step one, 
they spritzed the nose of the student with either a mist containing oxytocin or with a placebo spray that had no hormones. In part two, researchers posed as people who just happened to interrupt, ignore, and disagree with the unsuspecting student. In part three, the student who had just been snubbed filled out a mood questionnaire. The result? Among students who expressed distress about rejection, those who got spritzed with oxytocin trusted other people more than those who got the placebo spray. Reaching out to other people is known to increase oxytocin, so the Concordia researchers concluded that the next time someone snubs you at a party and you think hiding with your ease to hide your feelings of rejection, instead, reach out to someone. It just might improve your mood. And on the better late than never front, President Barack Obama is scheduled to deliver today a long-awaited second-term plan for tackling climate change. So stay tuned to national radio, TV, or the web for his talk, which is slated to begin at 1.35 Eastern Time, that's 11.35 our time, at Georgetown University. We'll cover more on climate policy and, lack thereof, on future How on Earth shows. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Shelley Schlender. Up next, let's welcome our new member of the KGNU Science Show team, Garth Sundum. That's right. We're so lucky to have Garth, a science writer who's written several books, including most recently, Brain Trust. In fact, we interviewed Garth recently on the show a few weeks ago, and then we snagged him. Uh, nice to be back on this side of the mic, and, and thank you guys uh, both for having me. Um, we're going to talk a little voodoo today, but uh, you've probably heard about tests that psychologists use to measure you know, things like extroversion or personality or intelligence, but uh, what about aggression? Uh, as you can probably imagine, it's a nice thing to know. How likely is a person to act aggressively toward another person? You know, wars, intimate partner violence, and terrorism, these are all products of aggression. But unfortunately, as aggression research has evolved to include things like, you know, internet-driven data collection and aggression towards acquaintances, romantic partners, and strangers, the measures haven't kept pace. The way we measure aggression is broken. Uh, but University of Kentucky psychology professor Nathan DeWall has a fix. It's called the voodoo doll task. Dewall's recent studies include over 1,300 subjects, and an upcoming research paper shows his voodoo doll task works darn well. What does an angry person do when holding a voodoo doll and a handful of pins, or when presented with a computerized version of the doll? The answer could indicate that person's desire to carry out the aggressive actions in real life. With us on the phone now from Kentucky is our voodoo doll scientist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dewall. Hey, thanks for having me. So the first thing I want to ask is, um, in what situations is it beneficial to measure aggression? Well, I mean, you, you can really think of, uh, you know, research being conducted in lots of different environments, right? There are sort of face-to-face, uh, over computers, and then, you know, uh, in a laboratory, and then outside of the laboratory in the Internet. Um, and increasingly, researchers need to have tools that can navigate it, all of those environments. And so 
um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a measure that would enable people who want to study things like aggression to do that. And so that was how this uh, voodoo doll task was born. So outside of just studying aggression, I, I talked to Paul Ekman about uh, predicting aggression based on microexpressions, and he said, you know, hopefully it will at least allow the uh, researcher to know when to duck. Um, <laughs> is is there a, a sort of a real-world role of predicting aggression as well? Is this a measure that you can imagine releasing into the wild? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and what we showed, uh, almost to our surprise, is, is how well this task maps onto actual aggression that people carry out in their relationships. So, for example, one of our studies that had over 500 people in it who had been married at least five years, mm -hmm. what we showed is that people in that sample, the more that they stabbed this voodoo doll with pins, the more likely they were to have caused serious physical injury to their partner by beating them up. Oh, wow. So you're, you're back predicting this thing to validate. You know, you're predicting the past, and, and so you show that it will also predict the future? Yeah, and, it, so it, it, uh, and we show that, you know, going back a year in your relationship, it, does, um, it can predict that pretty well. And even going back five years in your relationship, there's a correlation. And so and you can do it backward. You can also do it forward. I can use your performance on this measure uh, to predict uh, you know how aggressively you're going to be behaving uh, a month from now. Uh, that's and, uh, and so it sort of goes both ways. So it really um, so at one level, this task uh, gives us an indication of just generally how aggressive people are. Mm -hmm. But another thing it does is uh, is we get a, a sort of a reading of how people respond to adverse events in their environment. So. Oh, that's cool. And so you write that this task depends on magical thinking. Why? Why is that? Well, what what we're showing is that you know, uh, you know, sticking a, a pin in a voodoo doll, you know, at you know, at some level, that this doll is not going to be hurt by this, right? No matter if I tell you this doll represents your close friend, your romantic partner, or this stranger on the street. Uh, at, you know, at a conscious level, you can argue with yourself and say, this this is meaningless. It doesn't, you know, there's no way it's actually going to cause this person any harm. <laughs> the problem is our minds aren't set up that way. At a deep gut level, there's a, a small part of our mind that says, well, wait a minute, you should not do this um, because, you know, something might potentially happen. So, so even if you aren't, uh, you know, a superstitious person, someone who, who would believe in magic mm -hmm. or even, you know, someone who practices voodoo on your spare time, <laughs> uh, what psychological research over the past, you know, 25 years has shown is that you put people in situations like this and they start to act in ways that would lead you to think that they believe in magic at least a little bit, at least these sort of magical beliefs. Oh, that's funny. So, you know, on the flip side of this, I have kids who like their stuffed animals. Do you have anyone who acts especially non-aggressively towards the doll? You know, is there anyone who tries to comfort the doll instead of stabbing it? And, and does that say anything about people on the, on the flip side of aggression? 
Yeah, I think it would. I mean, and and there there have actually been studies that shown that uh, not not with dolls necessarily, but if you know if I put a picture of a baby on a dartboard, you're not going to throw it at the oh, baby, even though, even though you know that. <laughs> This isn't going to hurt the kid, right? Uh, but there's still something deeply ingrained in our minds that says, "Don't do this. Like, don't don't risk it with yourself." Now we can argue about why that is, mm-hmm. but at some level, the the behavior still shows up. So, so yes, I think you're right that you know it, it goes both ways. Oh, I'm totally going to put a baby up on the dartboard and count the number of holes at the end of the day. <laughs> I hope you'll be at zero. So so this takes the place. Well, I shouldn't say it takes the place. It may augment. It may, you know, supersede or whatever. But it it follows on the heels of a test called the hot sauce test. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a great one. Uh, really what it the hot sauce task, it's it's something where you you give people an opportunity uh, to to harm another person who hates hot and spicy food by making them eat as much as you want them to. And so <laughs> you give participants a plate of chips or crackers and you say, okay, this is uh, what you're going to do is prepare a food sample for this person. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, you'll put people in a situation where this person is kind of annoying. They've insulted you. They've provoked you in some way. And this is going to be your opportunity to get back at them. And so you give them their food preferences. And it's and it, on their preference list, it says, you know, very, very low ratings on hot and spicy food. Not allergic to it, but definitely hate it. And then you give them a jar of hot sauce and you say, you can dole out as little or as much of this, but remember, everything you give them, they have to eat. <laughs> this doesn't sound virtual. It sounds like you, you know, you're, you're, you think that you are harming a person, the same yeah. as voodoo. You, you think you're harming a person. Right, exactly. Okay. And, you know, in, in real life uh, with the hot sauce test, sometimes people actually do do that. They, you know, they'll, they'll say, they'll, you know, uh, there have been cases where parents have made their children suffer by eating hot and spicy oh. food. Uh, and so there is some external validity to the task as well. Okay, so we got to go. But I'm Garth Sundem, and we've been chatting with uh, University of Kentucky psychology professor Nathan DeWall about his voodoo doll task. It's a new way to measure aggression, and you can find out more about Dr. DeWall at his fascinating work by doing a quick Google search on DeWall. That's D-E-W-A-L-L, and Kentucky. It'll take you to his uh, faculty webpage. Thank you very much, Dr. DeWall. Thanks for having me. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. These days, they get a kind of bad rap because of their use by the government to snoop on people and sometimes kill terrorists. But unmanned aircraft, often called drones, are increasingly being used to save the planet and its threatened species. A group of CU Boulder scientists and engineers have designed an unmanned aerial vehicle, or UAV, that they're about to take to Alaska's Arctic Circle. The aircraft is called Datahawk and it's meant to help them better grasp how Arctic sea ice is melting, especially in the summer in areas where it used to persist for many years. One of the key designers of the vehicle is Doug Weibel. 
He's a Ph.D. student in aerospace engineering science at CU, and he's here in the studio to talk with us about the promises and challenges of this mission, as well as other drones that are or could be deployed in the name of science. Doug, welcome to the show. Good morning. So um, let's just get it over with first. So drones, I know you may not, and a lot of scientists probably don't like the term, but it is a generic term for unmanned aerial vehicles, right? Pretty well, although certainly there's negative connotations associated with that term. These and are clearly good drones. Yeah. Uh, the drones we're using uh, don't have any cameras on them. They don't have any weapons on them. Uh, basically, we're making scientific measurements in a way that's uh, cheaper and safer than they could be made in other ways. And beyond defense, it's pretty new for civilian use. So why don't we jump right into, um, just give us a description of what this mission is and where you're going. Sure. The The overall project is called the Marginal Ice Zone Process Observation and uh, Experiment. Uh, did I get all that right? MISAPEX is the acronym, <laughs> long acronym. We love those. And basically, we're interested in uh, seeing what's happening in the uh, area of the Arctic Ocean this summer where the ice is melting. So there's a seasonal melting and refreezing. And uh, we're interested in making some measurements of the water temperature and the ice thickness and uh, other uh, things going on up there uh, that generally would cost a lot of money and in some cases put people in harm's way to make those measurements. If you're having, you mean, expensive planes, helicopters, including um, research vessels? Sure, yeah. A lot of the measurements that I'm involved in making are subsurface water uh, measurements, so the, the measurement of the temperature of the water below the surface. And to get those, you basically have to send a ship out there, and a ship can only take a measurement at one place at one time. So we're using UAVs to get uh, those measurements and to make them in, in a lot of different locations at the same time. So give me a lay of the land. This is way off the coast or not so far off the coast of, say, Barrows and the... In the Buford Sea? We'll be in, in Prudhoe Bay, so east of Barrow. And uh, how far off the coast depends on, <laughs> on the weather this summer. Uh, it could be fairly close, you know, 10, 20 kilometers off the coast. It could be 100 kilometers off the coast. It just depends on how the ice melt goes this summer. And you're looking at, so some of the ice is melting seasonally anyway. Some of it has persisted for years, but you're trying to figure out what, why... What is the pattern and why? Right. There's a lot of, of, lot of objectives, really. Uh, mostly it goes to collecting data to better improve models. So there's models uh, that help forecast the weather in that part of the world. Uh, obviously, the weather in that part of the world affects the weather everywhere else to a great extent. And there's models that are predicting things like the, the ice melt. And, uh, you know, those models are made better and better by having more and more accurate information uh, to validate them and improve them. And you're one of the key designers on the team, at least at CU. So um, what are you going to be doing there? Uh, so this uh, program involves three different sizes of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, and I'm directly involved with two. The smallest, which is the Data Hawk, and the next larger uh, is a Scan Eagle, which is about 16-foot wingspan and, and maybe uh, 60 to 80 pounds. Wow, so bigger than a Condor. Yeah. And the yeah. small one is about how small? It's about three feet across, and it weighs about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, four pounds. So both of those, uh, my involvement with them involves making those measurements of the water temperature. And from the, the Scan Eagle, we have a, a developed a little instrument package called a micro buoy. It's about the size of a prescription bottle. And we can load several of those into the UAV, and it flies out and then drops them where we tell it into the water. 
and they unfurl a sensor string down into the water, and they collect measurements. So it's dropping the buoys down. They're staying there stationary, or they're kind of floating around. Right, drifting with the current. And then sending up info, um, temperature and yeah. depth and such every so often? Or yeah, what so they're, they're collect, collecting uh, their position. They've got little GPS units in them. And the water temperature at, at different depths. And they store that information. And then every day or so, we send the, the scan eagle back out, where it can get close enough to have a radio conversation with them. And it'll hello, collect that Hello, hello, I'm up here. Right. Because it's just this little teeny guy floating in the water, and it could be, you know, 50 miles away. I'm thinking of the guy in Life of Pi. Yeah. It has a tiny little battery like your watch, right? So it can't, it, it can't really talk very far. Uh, like so how far? What, what's its limit? How, how close does a UAV have to be? About three miles. Uh-huh. So pretty close. Um, so each day the, the scan eagle go go out and overfly all these little buoys and uh, collect all their data and bring it back to us. And then the Datahawk, the smaller UAV, it does the same thing, but uh, there'll be leads that open in the ice. There are so small areas that open in the ice where there's open water, but it's you know could be small. So uh, we'll use the scan eagle to, to find where those are. And then we can target the data hawk to fly right into those areas and land right in that particular spot. And what are some of the key technical challenges? I'm sure there are many. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, one is is uh, designing instruments that, you know, can one uh, go into that environment. So, you know, the GPS has to operate properly at, at very high uh, uh, latitudes. And they have to float around in salt water that's cold. And... Uh, they have to last a while, right? To be any good, it's it's good if their batteries don't kind of peter out and die in three days, right? Well, we'll definitely want to have you uh, back on and others maybe from the team when you're done. But just so quickly, one last thing, um, best case scenario, what are you hoping to glean from this? Yeah, the best case scenario is that uh, we have uh, our instruments in place in the water functioning properly uh, for a couple weeks. And during that time, uh, other researchers on the team will be flying different instruments uh, overhead, making measurements with LIDARs and radars and uh, infrared cameras and whatnot. And uh, the best case scenario is that we can collect all of the data possible and be able to, to you know, bring it all back and put it all together to help improve uh, all the models. Well, good luck to you. We'll uh, follow up on that later. That was Doug Weibel, a doctoral student in engineering at CU Boulder in aerospace engineering science. He's on the team that has developed unmanned aircraft to use in the Arctic. Thanks so much, Doug. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Rob Garza. Can't listen to How on Earth on a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Shelley Schlender.